Hello, everybody. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to mention to you our headline sponsor, Routine. Um, when you guys wake up each morning, I think most people don't realize that when we sleep, we lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water, expelling vapor, sweat, all kinds of stuff. Um, they sell a product called Morning Routine. It's a, it's a product that I've uh, enjoyed for some time now and, and love to have it in the morning or whenever I feel like I need to get rehydrated. They come in single-serve packets, and each packet contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, Himalayan sea salt, all six essential electrolytes, and most importantly, no sugar. You can just tear one of these packets open. I always throw it in about 20 ounces of water, shake it up, and it's good to go. Uh, trusted ingredients, made convenient routine. They also have other products such as green superfoods, vitamin D, apple cider vinegar gummies, and elderberry gummies. Uh, if you want to check out Routine, you can head over to yourroutine.com. Uh, there's a link in the show notes as well. And you can use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout for 30% off your first order. So head over to the to routine, uh, yourroutine.com and use the promo code ShaneWhite30. Hook yourself up with some of their awesome products. Um, before we jump in, today's episode is with Jake Bullock. He's one of the co-founders of Can. Uh, if you haven't heard of Can yet, I'm very confident you will in the in the short in the near future, I should say. Uh, Can is um, a basically it's a you know it's not even seltzer water. It's like tonic water um, uses all natural ingredients. Um, we get into like with the makeup of what Can is, um, but they have THC and CBD in the cans. So they're trying to change the, basically the norm of drinking culture um, by bringing in low doses of so micro dosing of cannabis in a drink. And um, I got my hands some on here, uh, got my hands on some here in Illinois. It's, it's legal and um, they're delicious. They're delicious. Uh, you don't wake up hungover from them. I'll let Jake do the sales pitch on the podcast, but <clears throat> Jake was an awesome, awesome guest. They're doing some really cool, innovative things with can. And I think you guys will love today's episode. All right, everybody, without further ado, Jake Bullock. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. I am stoked today to have Jake Bullock on the podcast. Uh, one of the co-founders of Can. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, man. Do you mind giving everyone just a little lowdown, a little intro into you and then the brand? Yeah, definitely. Um, Jake Bullock, I'm co-founder and CEO of Can. Um, we started the company about two years ago. We launched in, in Venice Beach in LA. Um, it's really a micro dose. Uh, we've got a range of products, but our core product sold in six packs. It's two milligrams of THC six of our uh, four of CBD. And that combination really, we think is what makes it social. We call them social tonics. 
the idea is that uh, for most cannabis products, they're really unapproachable. People, um, you know, either do too much if it's inedible, maybe they don't feel comfortable smoking or vaping. The idea is to, to make cannabis a, an approachable product for the mainstream. Um, and in order to do that, you really need to unlock the social potential. If you think about other things that, you know, we consume uh, mild intoxicants, say alcohol or caffeine, right? We, we drink them. And, and maybe more importantly, we drink them in microdoses. And so that was really the thinking behind the product and the active ingredient. Uh, and, and in some ways, we're sort of insurgent in cannabis because we are all about getting people to drink less alcohol. This is not a product oh, yeah. that is meant to be sort of, oh, you smoke a lot of weed, you should drink it instead. Like that's not us, right? People that are sort of daily um, cannabis consumers may find our product not strong enough for them, right? Um, this is really for that person that's walking down the street uh, and they're thinking about drinking alcohol at the end of a long day or over the course of the weekend. Um, and some of our best customers continue to drink alcohol, right? Um, but they maybe drink 10 or 20% less. And so it's giving people another option uh, to be social in a similar way in terms of the buzz, but in a much healthier way in terms of hangovers, effects the next day, emotional regret, physical pain, headaches, yeah, TV, right. missing workout classes, like all of that stuff that, that, you know, as we get older, we start to realize it becomes harder and harder if we live a life of only sort of um, drinking alcohol. Love it. Love it. And to give everyone like a little bit more of a background too, I mean, so the product, it comes in a can um, and could you maybe just dive into um, like where the idea come from? Like, what were you, what were you doing before can and like, where did this kind of concept bubble up from? Yeah. So I, I kind of immediately prior to can, I was in business school at Stanford. And so that's really when I started working in earnest on this idea of cannabis beverage, but I'd been thinking about it you know, for a really long time. So I grew up in Colorado, obviously Colorado went through the first adult use legalization process. As I sort of watched that market kind of having been from there and a lot of friends and family still living in that area, it always struck me that the products like um, gummy bears or piece of chocolate, they didn't really feel like adult products. I mean, they made a lot of sense for the legacy market and, and, and why they needed to be, you know, they're made in someone's kitchen. That makes sense. They're easy to transport, high concentration. You know, that doesn't really make sense in a legal market. In a legal market, we need to look to analogs, like I said, alcohol, caffeine, others to understand what the right product is. So I had that seed of like cannabis beverage in my head. And I had been an investment banking analyst right out of, out of um, college and actually met my co-founder, Luke, um, at uh, Bain & Company in San Francisco. We were both oh, management yeah. consultants. Um, and then from there, I went on and did um, a lot of private equity investing, primarily in consumer restaurants and retail. I fell in love with this idea of consumer brands being sort of this sum of a lot of really, really small decisions that, that folks make in a company early on uh, that determine whether it sort of gets through that filter or not. Uh, and I found that really interesting. And so right when I got to Stanford, California uh, had passed the adult use act. And, and so it was sort of this perfect laboratory of two years. Like if you can't figure out how to make a great cannabis product while at Stanford in this amazing environment around entrepreneurship, you're probably never going to start a company. And so sure, I yeah. took that as a, as a challenge. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. So it's some, it's, that's pretty wild that you were, had been thinking about it for so long too. It wasn't like you just like woke up one morning and you like started doing it. It was like, you actually really thought through it and had like been thinking about it and had been kind of involved somewhat in the industry because of where you lived. Right. Yeah. What's crazy is, um, you know, when we, when I first kind of like started developing this idea of talking to Luke about it from an, for even because we became friends after we met it, it, it in about 10 years ago, really now. And, um, you know, he was always saying alcohol's is doing just fine. Like I'm going to stick to my drinks. And we, we sort of would have these conversations, but you know, I thought it was a great idea. And, and when we started the company, we were like, wow, look at us. This is the best idea ever. You just have to bring the dosing down and you make it taste great. And it, it will be, you know, it'll be this amazing thing. 
And the reality is we got into the industry and we actually started learning about what we didn't know about food science, about beverage, about how you actually formulate these products, how you produce them. Um, the consumer distribution dynamic is really an interesting one. Um, you know, this is an industry that's set up to sell products that are really lightweight um, and tend to be like flour or pre-roll joints or vapes, right? So it's a totally yeah. mismatch in the channel. Um, and we realized pretty soon, pretty quickly on, on that we were not like the first people to have this idea. Um, we uh, Many of them had tried and failed. It was just really hard. And at the time, you know, about three years back when we were actually trying to make the emulsion, do the technology to get cannabis, which starts as an oil into a liquid, right? To a water, you have to really figure out how to emulsify that. And it's really difficult. Um, so we locked ourselves in, in a room for six months and we tested every single you know, variation we could possibly think of in packaging and in, in emulsion technology and formulation to get where we got. Um, and so even though we, 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 we sort of thought we were on this great idea, we very quickly realized that the hard part was the execution. And that's continued to be the case. Like at, at every step of the way, you can't run a, a a, a beverage playbook uh, in, in cannabis industry today because the dispensaries control the entire uh, environment. And so uh, you have all these regulations and restrictions and how you can, what you can and can't do. That's very different than alcohol. It's very different than soft drinks. And so, you know, at every step of the way, we've had to sort of um, kind of just put our heads down and using brute force, come up with a solution that, you know, maybe it's not our ideal one, um, but it gets the job done. Love that. That's pretty cool. So, we, and you guys were, were you guys like in, you know, housing on Stanford's campus. Like, how are you guys testing these things? Like when you talked about like, yeah, just like testing yeah. and figuring it out, trying to learn food science. That seems like usually something, especially with, um, we've had a few people on here talking about like different CPG products that are in the canned, I always call it, that's like, you know, ready to drink industry. Uh, and it's, it's very expensive. So like, how did, how did you guys like test and learn that on your own? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So I think there, there's like two really important things that go on here. The first is in, in CPG broadly, um, kitchen grade is very different than sort of commercial grade, right? Uh, and I think a lot of people make them mistake. You can make something absolutely delicious, whether it's a food product, a beverage product in your kitchen, and there's no guarantee that you'll be able to commercialize that and get the same uh, flavor, experience, effect, whatever it is right. um, on an industrial sort of scale. Um, and so we were going into it with that knowledge. Um, and what's really cool about beverage, it's both cool and very difficult, um, is the technology to, to kind of uh, carbonate, uh, uh, force carbonate a liquid and put it into a bottle or a can uh, doesn't really change from that small grade all the way up to like the biggest canning lines, bottling lines in the world. They're using the same kind of piece. And obviously they're doing it much faster on a larger scale with, with all this interesting automation and, and technology, but it's basically like the same fundamental process. And so we had in, in my garage in Palo Alto um, kegs, which we would force carbonate basically oh, using awesome. some sort of like uh, <laughs> CO2 and agitation. And then um, we would, we would, fill. Um, at this time it was brown glass bottles because it's much easier to cap a bottle than it is to seam a can. The can seam is a whole nother, a whole nother ballgame, but you can do yeah. for fairly inexpensively. So for, for beverage folks, there's ways to do this. And, and I highly recommend um, doing this, like setting it up in, you know, in your kitchen, in your garage, somewhere where you can kind of, you know, control the entire experience from end to end. Um, because uh, not only will you learn sort of like how to make this product and it is really transferable on the beverage side, um, but uh, it also cuts down on the cost. So you know, you, the, the alternative is to go pay a formulator and they've got, like, there's a lot of those folks out there, pay them you know, tens of thousands of dollars, maybe more uh, to, to do, build these prototypes for you and work with you. And, and the reality yeah. is like, if you're building a food product and you can't do it yourself in your kitchen, you probably shouldn't be in the food and beverage industry. Like you've got to figure out 
how to control that experience because every incentive that you will face commercially when you try to build this product um, is going to be in, in favor of like taking your money, trying to make you make something that's cheaper, that's easier from a, from a product ingredient spec standpoint. Like we don't have any preservatives in our product. Why don't we do that? Because it tastes better. Preservatives taste nasty. Like if you put them in water and just determine the effect of this preservative on yeah. the water, you will have a really bad taste. And so like the fact that you can put that in a product, but you know, you can't really tell as much, it doesn't change the fact that you're putting something gross into a product. Uh, we don't use concentrated juices because a concentrated juice doesn't have that sort of natural balance. Uh, the mouth feel, the intensity, flavor concentration is all off versus what a juice actually brings to the table. And people do it because it's cheaper, but we don't like it because it makes the taste worse. Um, in Vogue right now, like I'm, I'm drinking a LaCroix, this is very common, has uh, natural flavors. You're like, oh, that's so right. nice, it's natural flavors. Well, it's natural with other natural flavors. So so my grapefruit flavor in this LaCroix like, isn't just from grapefruit, it's from other things as well. And why do they do that? Sometimes it's because they're trying to get the flavor right. And there's some of it like dialing up how you can extract and, and, and transfer into an, a total flavor profile. But it's mostly because there's cheaper sources to get that, right? And so why not use the cheap stuff instead of use the, the, the all natural stuff? And so we use all natural flavors for that reason. It makes our product taste better. Um, and it's those types of things that you learn when you're in a kitchen, when you're in a lab, you're doing it yourself and you're seeing those trade-offs um, and, and feeling them, experiencing them as you taste the product and dip through different versions. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot there. So, and then this might sound like a dumb question, but I've always laughed thinking about, you know, either alcohol or even your guys's product. How, uh, how do it, it's going to sound funny. How, how are you, te- how are you, uh, testing it? Like, are you going to, are you getting like totally baked from just like testing tons of products? Like I, I always think envision like two people trying to start a company in either of those industries and like, how many can you test in one sitting without having to take a little break? Right. Yeah. And that's a great question. Um, so a couple of things, one, uh, we're fortunate enough, uh, you know, when compared to alcohol that we can formulate our product ex cannabis. And when we introduce the cannabis, we know that that emulsion has no odor, no taste does not change sort of the, the, the flavor experience oh, profile wow. of the beverage, um, which is a huge advantage for two reasons. One, it allows us to formulate, like you're saying, and test a ton of different product, um, knowing that like when we add the cannabis, it won't have an impact. Um, but two, it also lets us have virgin versions of our product that we can give out in marketing and promotion because you can't really give away free cannabis products, right? That's that's like a, a lot, not allowed in any of these um, states. And so having the virgins allows people to actually taste the flavor and understand it. Um, but you do have this problem where you're like, uh, we try to do this stuff in the evening that tends to help. Like you don't want to do like a bunch of formula and like product testing at 10 a.m. But often you have to because we'll, you know, I'll be at the facility and we'll be um, canning a new flavor. I always like to try it off the line because again, you never know all the different things that can happen through the product. And so as we try sure. stuff off the line, that usually happens like at nine in the morning before it goes canning for like a full day. Uh, and so you kind of have to deal with that a little bit. I mean, yeah. thankfully our product is a microdose, right? So the idea is that uh, you'll absorb it faster. It's going to be less intense than, you know, a 10 milligram edible you might take. Um, and it will also, it will sort of, what we call offset. Um, you'll feel it sort of subside in, in the body, um, you know, within the hour. So it has a very similar profile to, uh, in terms of strength to a light beer or a glass of wine. You know, you, the rule of thumb of about one an hour is pretty good in terms of how your body processes it. Got it. Oh, that's interesting. That was gonna be my next question was just, you know, what can people expect when they drink it? Like comparatively to a beer, is it like pretty relative? So it is, that's interesting. So it's like one an hour is kind of like what it takes for you to burn off one can. 
It's about right. Similar to alcohol, there's some there's some extra kind of carry there. So if you, you know, it's like one an hour, kind of up to three, but then if you're gonna do five or six, like you've got to probably maybe add an extra hour because sure. that's it adds. Um, but it is, it's meant to be similar in strength. It's a little bit of a different buzz. We think it's a better one. It makes you sort of feel like, uh, at least for me, uh, a little bit more myself, a little bit more comfortable. I don't feel like I'm putting on something. I'm sort of just able to relax and be myself and engage socially with others. It's, it's, it's trying to capture that, that uh, sort of feeling of euphoria that you have um, at the very beginning of a cannabis experience, right? Not dissimilar from alcohol. Like no one wants to drink something and then be immediately, you know, wasted drunk. Yeah. Uh, that wouldn't really work. It's that building. It's that sort of like energy that you get from kind of feeling it and then feeling it a little bit more that we're trying to capture. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Cause that is so true. Like, I, I mean, how many people have we all talked to who had just a little bit too much when it comes to, to cannabis and then it like ruins the experience. So it's kind of flipping that on its head. Exactly. That's pretty cool, man. Um, so, and then one of the early questions I had to ask too was around um, early, like minimal viable product. Like I work, uh, I don't know if we talked about this before, but coming up through RX bar, um, we used to just give out bars to anyone and everyone all the time. And it's how we got a lot of early feedback for a product like yours. And you kind of hit on it already, but like, how are you guys kind of able to do that? Was that just had to be at a smaller scale or? Yeah. Like, how did you, how did you go about that process of trying to get it in people's hands and getting that feedback early on? Yeah. So very, very early on, we would make this product, like I said, in my garage in Palo Alto or uh, Luke's apartment at one point. Um, and we would give it to folks and we, we actually, um, you know, thinking in terms of minimum viable product, we would do this in, you know, brown glass bottles, or we would do it in big sort of like um, empty soda containers, different things like that. I think it's a huge advantage to, to do your early testing in a, not a final form. Um, so no branding, make it kind of look like it is early because you want people to give you good feedback. And often people will sort of lie to you. Um, and so there's certain things you can do, right? You can have them write it down. You can, you can not be there when they try it. You can set, we would send them home with six packs and then send them like uh, a survey to fill out that okay. helps. There's not the pressure of like us looking over them. We also made it really clear that everything is changeable. And when it's in a brown bottle with no label and like, it, it feels like everything is changeable. Right. And so you're more likely to get feedback from folks. I think one, one big watch out is you have to only test things that you believe in. Like, this is not a sort of a question of, um, you know, there may be some sort of phenomena that you're trying to identify that you can't fully appreciate. Like, that's not the case. You're a consumer. You understand how this stuff works. Like Luke and I said, if we found something we both found was delicious, we would test it with consumers. But we weren't going to test something that was like, one of us didn't like. That wasn't helpful. Um, consumers can only help you so much with this stuff because they don't really know uh, how to articulate what they're experiencing. They don't really know. Like someone will look at our lemon lavender flavor, for example, and be like, oh, lavender. Like, I don't know if I would like that. It's our most popular flavor in the summer. People absolutely love it. It's refreshing. It's light. It's almost better not to tell them the flavors, right? Because um, right. then you get that un, un, sort of unfiltered piece. The other thing we did, which was really interesting, is early on we went to, and this was back, you know, before the pandemic, we had these big trade shows. We went to Expo West, which is a big natural foods trade show. Oh, yeah we brought our virgin products. We could never bring a cannabis product there, right? Um, oh, they actually wouldn't, they wouldn't let you. because just They wouldn't let you. Um, and, you know, we're not even in the sort of traditional beverage world, right? So a lot of the benefit of going to these things is you get, you get sort of industry insiders and supply chain, all this stuff um, benefit out of it. We kind of went as a joke. We've had a big sign. It's like, these are not our products. Like, don't ask us about our real products. And we got, it was incredible for getting feedback because we probably had uh, 2,000 people try the product over the course of three days. 
Um, and we got them to weigh in on flavors. We had a number of flavors there. We got uh, them to use vocabulary that now we still use and how to describe the experience, the flavor experience. Um, and so I highly recommend early on doing something like that. It was really putting ourselves out there. This was three months before we launched um, and just see like how do consumers respond? And, and we had an incredible response. We felt really good that what we had, we could launch with. That's really cool. That's funny that you like, I feel like most people would have, if they, if they couldn't take their product Expo West, they would have just either not gone or they would have gone and uh, not had a booth, but that's, that's pretty incredible that you guys went and like just had a virgin version of it and uh, got feedback the only way you could. That's just a scrappy yeah. way to do it. Thousands of people and they all tried it. And it's sort of like, when are you going to get that group of sort of food and beverage, you know, industry professionals to weigh in on your product? Yeah, probably nowhere else. Right. Um, this might come off as maybe another dumb question, but I'm not a, uh, I'm not as proficient, maybe I'm sure as you are in this industry, but early on, a lot of times on the, on this podcast, I talk about going from zero to one. And I can only imagine for you guys early on, you had to have gotten a ton of people who push back on, push back on the idea, the concept, like, couldn't it be scalable with the current laws? Like, I'm sure that was, and this is probably a question you answer all the time, but what was some of those like early pushbacks that you guys had to like push through and keep believing in your product? And like, do you have any key takeaways that you guys learned from that just to like keep pushing forward and making sure you brought the product you believed in to market? Yeah, it's a great question. We, we've got a ton and we continue to get them. Um, very early on, the first thing we heard was you can't do it. You can't actually manufacture a microdose cannabis beverage in a can um, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, in, in California, for example, we have to do independent lab testing. This is true in, in, in almost all the states and uh, the, the range is plus or minus 10%. Um, and so if you think about a product that is uh, 100 milligrams, they're shooting for 90 to 110. Okay, great. At two milligrams, like we're talking about 1.8 to 2.2. That is a tiny window that we have to hit and prove that that's, that's the amount of THC that's in the product. It makes ah, it really, yeah. really difficult to manufacture. Precision has to be, and this is you know, sort of almost getting to the point of like pharmaceutical type levels of precision, uh, not traditional food and beverage. Uh, cans also are interesting. There's like all sorts of um, packaging interactions that happen with, with uh, emulsions. And, and so um, you have to solve that problem. That was one of the first science challenges we had. And so we had to go out and first prove to people that you could actually do this. And we were the first microdose beverage to launch uh, in the world. Uh, we also the oh, first wow. product to sell in a six pack, like a can cans of six pack, um, which is really cool because you know we want people to think of it like a beer or like you know canned wine. And so that was really important for us. At one point, we were sort of like, do we avoid this whole science problem and go in glass and like glass didn't feel authentic. Obviously the company is called can. So we had this sort of duty <laughs> um, that helped us sort of persevere. Uh, but then we also heard, you know, beverage is a novelty, right? The products on the market, no one likes there was the legacy side had issues because really hard, the emulsion science, you get sort of like um, oily mouthfeel, the emulsion would break down something that was sediment. Uh, often these are really, really sugary sort of like acidic lemonade type products because they're masking the cannabis taste. So that was something we were able to get rid of from the outset. But, um, you know, that kind of created a culture around cannabis beverages where people were like, eh, it's a novelty. People, they don't really sell that fast. People don't actually really want to drink their weed. What's interesting about that, and I think it's a good lesson is that is true. Like nothing like that in the moment, that was the case, right? Like if you took a snapshot of the industry, if you do it now, even if you look at the data in California, it's changed a lot over the last two years, in large part because of our product and some others. But, uh, 
you would make the same determination. You would say, oh, all the money is in flour. All the money is in vape. Like if you're, if you're buying, if you're selling an edible, you know, you got to have hundred milligrams in the package because that's what you can charge, you know, $25 for and the economics work, right? There was so much of the uh, entrenched existing retail structure built around this idea that we are selling, you know, cannabis products to high tolerance cannabis consumers. Yeah. Uh, that's missing. That's missing the point, right? Like we often joke that it feels at times we are selling light beer into these speakeasies at the end of prohibition, right? Like <laughs> no one in the speakeasy wants light beer. Like they want to keep drinking their liquor. Like they've been doing that for the last, you know, 10 years. Uh, that misses the opportunity of light beer. Though. That misses the opportunity of mass market drinkers that don't want, you know, a uh, hundred proof product. They want something they can have a number of them and, and be a, still a functioning human being the next day. And so that's really how we 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 kind of overcame that. It was it was almost a positive to hear people say that because we knew from the consumer work, like we knew the demand was there. We knew that people liked the idea of this product. Every day, like someone will reach out and say, "This was the exact product I had been dreaming of." Like I thought about this. This needed to exist. I'm so glad you guys made it. Um, and so those those things helped to kind of get us over. We had to keep falling back on those early consumers that said, "Like please tell me you're doing this. Please tell me this product will exist," because. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that are going to sort of just have that, that sort of consensus status quo mindset, and they're looking at the stock and not really the flow. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. I mean, it, it seems like that would be where a ton, there had to have been, this, or I got back up. This is where I always say too, and I'm sure you've heard this, but like the idea is one thing. It's the, it's the follow through and actually bringing something to life that is like where all the magic is. Like, I'm sure a million people had the same idea of like, we want to, we want to put cannabis in some sort of beverage. I'm sure that has been thought of so many times, but to get through and push back when you believe in a product, um, obviously you guys have done that numerous times. So I think that's, that's very impressive. Um, yeah, totally. And in your point of like thinking about zero to one, another insight from that, I think is don't let the idea prevent you right? Like at the end of the day, winners and losers come from execution. Like I often get this comment from people. It's like, I've always wanted to start a company, but I've never had an idea I was excited about. And I was like, you're never going to start a company. Literally never. Like people use ideas to get over like the fear and anxiety and potentially like social shame of, of starting a company and failing. Um, it's a complete mistake. Like put 10 good ideas in a basket, pull one out, start working on that idea. It's like the execution that will determine you determine which path you follow. Right. And like, yeah. if you're smart and good at this, you will make the right adjustments. Uh, don't let the idea stop you. It's not really the relevant piece. I totally agree. I, uh, I, for the longest time I was that kind of person. And then I don't know about you. And I'd be curious to know what you like your keys were early on with can, but I know for me, it was like, I always, you know, envisioned anything I started was like this enormous project and like, how do you tackle it and actually execute it? And I started just like turning things into like small daily tasks. Like this week, I want to get this thing done, but then break that. How do you break that into like one thing a day that goes towards that thing? And then you add enough of those days and weeks and months up, you have things rolling. Is that yeah. kind of like how you did can? Like, did you guys kind of start with just like, like, what would you, do you remember what you started with? Like, what was like the first thing you guys like had on an Excel sheet or a piece of paper? And we're like, all right, this is the first thing we got to do. Yeah. Well, so the very, very first thing was we had three questions, sort of like, what can we answer these three questions? And it was sort of like, can you make this product? Can you raise the money? Um, you know, some, I can't remember what the third one was, but really, really fundamental ones that were sort of important for us to do go, no go. Um, but once we, once we got to the point where we raised the money, um, Luke and I were on the ground together day one in Venice beach. We were like above someone's garage in this one big room. And we like locked, basically locked ourselves in there. We were living together, like 
spending the entire day in this one room, all these big white walls. And we just started breaking it down. Like you said, like taking all the functional, functional things we had to go do, breaking them into smaller parts, breaking them into smaller parts, putting all those small parts on stickies, plaster the entire wall with stickies. And we're just like, okay, where do we start? And we just grab them and start working on it. And, um, and that was that added a lot of structure for us. It was great. Um, uh, uh, I think the other thing we did, which was, which is really smart. And I, I tell folks now I'm trying to like stop doing as much, but it's sort of beaten in us, which is we were open to everything. So everything was an opportunity. We like accepted random inbound LinkedIn's. We we were like anyone that would talk to us, we would talk to them, um, which was kind of crazy. And we spent a ton of our time, you know, going down these roads that ended up like now we look back being like, wow, that was a complete waste of time. But the, the idea of being really, really open to like anyone could help you, uh, I think was also really valuable in those early days when we had to kind of just learn really fast and figure out the things that we didn't know, whether, you know, if, if we were going to learn those ourselves or whether we're going to find somebody that didn't know them uh, to teach us. Yeah, I mean, I would have to imagine um just the the exercise even of doing that, I can envision like you guys do in the sticky notes like that. That's a, such a great idea. And probably for anyone listening who's had even a, a glimpse of an idea, like thinking through like just that took you guys one day to like map that out. And like you just got started and you just started rolling. And, and that's kind of how everything gets started and, you know, moves forward. Um, one of the other things that popped up in my head while we were talking about that was, um, you know, you guys are starting to get a product and you're starting to test it and get it out to some people early on before you have packaging and have an official launch. Was there another component? And I just know this from having a little bit of experience in like the CBD side of, of this market. Um, advertising and marketing has to be, you know, a challenge for you guys, right? Because I think a lot of platforms don't allow you to sell, like, you know, you can't sell on Amazon, for example. So how have you guys thought about like, that's like a big hurdle that I think you know, even if someone came up with a product and got a product ready, I can only imagine, you know, most people probably like, well, shit, I don't know if I can like market this. So now what do I do? You guys had to have thought through that. Um, what's your guys' kind of strategy been as far as like trying to bring the product to market now that you guys actually have a physical product that's ready to sell? Yeah, so it's interesting. There, you're right. There's a lot of restrictions on what we can do. Obviously, the pretty much the entire world of digital advertising is shut off to us based on sort of policies that Facebook and Google have in place. Um, there's some stuff you can do, but for the most part, it, it's really challenging. And then, you know, it often it behaves a lot like alcohol in terms of you can do some stuff out of home, billboards, things like that, but they have to be in certain locations. Uh, it's fairly difficult. Even on our, our own brand Instagram page, like we can't sell anything, right? So that's, oh, that's yeah. you know, sort of more just a, a brand experience, um, which is great. And we love doing that. And it's, it's one of our strengths. But, uh, you know, the, the, the key to marketing we found over these last couple of years is you really have to think of it through the lens of distribution. Like these things are related. And so in the early days, you're really just trying to build brand awareness. We still are trying to build brand awareness, right? Like we can, we can, we know this from some survey work we can do even in our best zip codes. Like, you know, we have tons of room to go in terms of awareness and, and penetration of just people's minds, right? Um, and so that means you may, you know, take risks and, and, and do certain campaigns, activations, like we would, you know, sometimes do events where we would sample the, the virgin version of the product, or, you know, we'd send people around, you know, the neighborhood. We had a big pop-up on Abbott Kinney right next to the MedMen where you could try the virgin product and then we'd send you next door to buy the real thing, right? Love it. Stuff hard. like that was great. You know, obviously the pandemic slowed down a lot of what we could do event-based in the community, um, but being kind of scrappy and creative, in just raising the brand awareness, but thinking about it always through the lens of distribution. So next to a point of sale. Through the pandemic, we spent a ton of time. Uh, how do we get on uh, the, the dispensary websites, like on their, their banners or delivery partners? 
delivery was was huge through through sort of the height of of the pandemic and so we wanted to to use that real estate obviously it's connected to point of sale because you can buy the product right there things like that make a lot of sense um a lot of the traditional marketing doesn't right like a big billboard that looks beautiful and reminds people of your product is completely useless because they will never walk through the aisles of a grocery store and see your product accidentally right yeah so there's, right. there's a number of touch points you need to have it's like fine. Yes, you have to do that, but it only matters if they know how to buy it. And it's, it's really easy to get someone to remember can, uh, from an advertisement. It's, it's much harder to get them to be like available at your local dispensary or like type in this website or scan this QR code. Like people don't do that. Like no one yeah. does. So sure. yeah. it makes it really, really challenging. But I think, I think a couple of the lessons for us is like, uh, combine your marketing with your point of sale. Like anything, the closer those are, the more successful it's going to be, especially if you're measuring that. But don't always measure like in the early days, especially and even now for us, uh, brand awareness is a completely fine objective. Uh, you don't have to show sales ROI from your marketing spend. I wouldn't spend like, you know, tons and tons of money on it. Right. But, but you, you, people have to find you somehow. Right. And so think about the things you can do creatively. The, the third thing that we, we did is we did a t invested a ton behind sort of earned media. And so being in LA helped a lot, spending time with people in the entertainment community because they like desperately love this product. Like they've been sort of off alcohol for 20 years, right? And uh, various relationships with cannabis. And, and what we've given them is, is a sort of like a really great product where they can merge those two or they can, they can get some sort of social buzz, but they don't have the same feeling the next day, the impact from, from a health standpoint, um, you know, how they feel, things like that. So uh, we've been able to catalyze a lot of really, really strong product support among, uh, you know, celebrities in, in, in LA and elsewhere into uh, news articles and, um, and social media posts and, and things like that that are shared around. Uh, and then that sort of starts, starts that flywheel going. Got it. Yeah, you guys have been very scrappy with like figuring out any which way you can kind of get out there. Um, speaking of, you know, celebrities and some of that influence, uh, and you kind of hit on some of this at the very beginning, but you know, one of your key starting points was seeing if you could raise the capital. So could you maybe give everyone at a real high level, you know, on here, because we're a finance podcast, um, just like what your guys's mindset was, I know in the CPG industry, and like I said at the beginning, I've talked to quite a few people on here now, and it's funny how there's depending on the industry or the type of CPG brand, it seems there's definitely like two routes that founders go down of of really wanting to raise capital early or try to bootstrap early and, and see what they can do with it. I in the canned industry, anything ready to drink, it seems like the initial capital needed to start a product is just immense in general. So I, I think most people probably go the capital route, would love to know, like, as, as that was like number two on your list to like, see if this was worth it, what you guys kind of thought through and, and how you inevitably ended up trying to go down the capital route. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's, a, that's right. Uh, in terms of the two paths. And there's also sort of this hybrid, right? Because if, as you point out, very rightfully, the uh, the working capital that goes into a, a beverage product is, is pretty significant and it doesn't really go away. It actually gets worse as you grow, especially in those early years. And so, you know, we kind of knew we had to raise capital, but there was a question of like, do you go big or do you kind of keep it small, right? Like do you kind of just raise just enough to get that first production run. And then you see how that sells and then you order, like a lot of people take that path and it's, it can be a good one for us. We knew really early on that time was a factor. We wanted to be first to market. We believed that there was a window that we had to go, um, capture in order to sort of begin this conversation with consumers it is really hard i think we still look back thinking like ah oh, could we have waited a year maybe um but but in some ways it's given us a, a huge advantage because we know our consumers so well over over the last couple of years when we thought about um you know raising i i had kind of just been at stanford in that world and so so much of 
that conventional wisdom is, you know, you kind of you go through all these funds and you get a bunch of intros and you sort of pick your favorite 10 and you, you, you know, you set them all up for, for pitches one week. And then you probably reach out to like maybe 20 angels and you slot them in the next week. And then you'll get a term sheet and you decide and you like pick the best fund or two and a handful of angels. And then it's like done, right? Like that's sort of like the traditional sort of tech venture model. Um, <laughs> that's not the case with cannabis, right? And it's not the case with most companies. Like when I talk to founders now and their experience, like it's so variable. Some people have that. Some people have like out of the blue, I got three term sheets and then like, you know, I had, had a couple of meetings and made a decision and like the round was done in, in three weeks. Um, you know, for us, it's varied. Like we've had really quick ones. We've had much longer ones. Um, and I think the important thing is to make sure you're in the right position as a, as a company, as an operation before you begin. And so for us, what did that mean? It means we needed a physical product. If you're doing CPG, like don't start fundraising until you have something to bring to the meeting that they can try. Like there's just absolutely no way someone's going to invest in your business unless they can try the product. Right. 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 And that's generalizable, I think as well into other industries, like you need to have a product. It doesn't have to be the exact version. Like I can show you pictures of our product, uh, which we pitched with, and it is a very different brand. It, we like, <laughs> but smart investors, and they said this, and they mean like, we trust you guys will figure out the brand. Like we, they understand sure, yeah. that's right. And, and our deck, like as a, the, the style of it is so funny compared to where we are now, but, um, we had a physical product in the room that people could demo. That's really, really important. Um, and we had sort of the story of what, what we were going to go do with that money. And it made sense. It sort of hung together. And so uh, I think having those pieces is really key. It's for some people, that means having a certain uh, number of team members or co-founding group uh, identified. For us, it was like we had, we, we had the backgrounds. We knew what we needed to do. And it was just a question of like, uh, how much do we raise? And once we figured that out, we, we ran. Would you mind? That's that's awesome. Number one, just like the thought process that went into that, uh, very well thought out. Number two, for people listening who've you know have never been close to this type of process, could you give anyone a just a little bit of a rundown of um, like how you guys figured out how much you wanted to raise? Because I think, especially if you're at the stage of maybe like pre-mass production, like the process of like, how do you start to find out like what a run of can is going to cost you guys? And then like how long an investment round can, can really get you to run with and, and how much you value the company, like at a very high level, I think, I think people like that in itself feels like a full-time job and and really hard to like, think about how did you guys kind of go about some of that? Yeah. So we, early on, we got really good advice, which was plan to not raise again for at least a year, right? Like give yourself a year of runway. Um, now the question of how you go calculate the year of runway depends a lot on your business. And so the way we did that is we like literally listed out every type of expense we forecasted over the year in sort of the scenario that we thought was most likely in terms of, you know, how much we would sell and what that would look like and how much we would spend in some of these other buckets marketing. If we hired anybody, I think we like planned for a bunch of hires sort of towards the end of the year. And then we thought about marketing in a really lean way, but we put numbers in against all of these sort of, you know, budgets, basically build your PL and think about what the cash impacts are of those. And then, you know, make it a year. And then, uh, and then the second thing I would say is, is then add 50% because you're going to be wrong in a million ways. You're going to forget a ton of stuff, right? Always better to raise more money. Like I know founders and I was the same way. I was just like hyper-focused on dilution. It's like, how much does this company want to sell? Like, we're not, like, we don't even know if we're right yet. Like, let's just do the little amount possible to like prove it out. And like, that is a strategy. And depending on what those milestones are, it can make sense for us. Like the milestone was launching the product. And so we needed to plan for a year and we did add 50%. Um, and the good news is about that is the only scenario in that case where you're raising again, uh, within a year is if things are going really, really well. And that's what happened to us. And so about 10 months later, we, you know, we're back in the market because we just needed more cash because the thing was going and it was really exciting. Um, 
you don't want to be in the situation where you like run out of money and you haven't hit those milestones. And then you're going back and explaining why, uh, that's just not a fun conversation and your investors aren't going to be very happy. Um, so plan to hit the milestones, give yourself a buffer. Uh, and then, you know, you kind of protect yourself against the worst case scenario. Got it. Yeah. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And that's cool. I mean, it's wild to think that in your industry too, that, you know, when you hit that milestone, that meant you need more cash to keep this, this boat afloat, right. <laughs> you know, like you go in that direction. Um, how did you guys, um, this is another question I've gotten from a ton of people is uh, how did you start the process of like trying to meet people? I think the first time I actually like saw your guys' brand was I think Casey Neistat. I think he posted yeah. something or his wife posted something about it. I think that, that was a while ago, but then like, that's when I started noticing you guys in the news and, the, and just like the scene and you guys got a lot of really big name people to invest in the brand. So how did you guys kind of like, it sounds like you were already very, you know, intertwined into the LA entertainment scene. So I'm sure that might be part of it, but would love to no, know. No, we weren't. Oh, <laughs> you weren't. Okay. We weren't at all. Um, so it, it's crazy. Like uh, everyone asks us all about the, on the celebrity piece, which I'll start with that. And I'll talk a little bit more about like, you know, general investors, but the celebrity piece, we were not at all. So what the strange thing started happening early on where we would get people with blue checks would start following us on Instagram. And we were like, so excited. We're like, what is this? Who's this person? Like are they famous? Often they were like somewhat connected to the industry or they were in the industry in some type of, you know, all sorts of different creative roles. Um, and so we would just be like really generous with product with them. And we would have a conversation. We'd be like, Hey, like, let, let us show you what we're all about. Um, and almost over-invested versus like, you know, who that person actually was. But like what we found very quickly is that person knew somebody who knew somebody, or it's like, Oh, I'm the hairstylist for this person, or I'm the person personal assistant for this person. And so slowly over time, we started just getting product to people. Um, and it was hard. It didn't just happen overnight, but as we did that, um, you know, I think we, we were getting half, half the time, no one responds, right. We don't even know if it got to them, right. Like maybe yeah. someone took it home or the assistant took it home or someone from the house or something. Um, but, but, but occasionally we would get a, 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 an inbound being like, I love the product. It's amazing. Like, can I get more, or can I talk to you about the company? Or like, um, and so we would just kind of continue each of those leads. And this was my co-founder Luke was like, perfected this strategy of like sort of uncomfortably staying a little bit longer when you drop off product. Like it was like us running around. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so uh, like, Oh, can I come in? And like, no one ever does that. Right. And it's sort of like, let me talk to you more about this. And he has this amazing personality where, you know, people don't feel threatened by that. So we were able to have those conversations and not like 90% of them don't go anywhere, but it's the 10% that do. And then those people are the ones you actually want because they, they had something connected to them in the product, in the experience that was so powerful that they want to keep coming back to us. And so that was really the path. I, I tell founders that ask me, you know, how do I get celebrities to invest in my company? It's like, it starts with the product. It's all about the product. Like only people you want to invest are the ones that love the product. And even then it's really hard, right? Because celebrities, famous people are used to, you know, you sending them money, not them yeah. sending you money. It's a really challenging kind of dynamic. But if you can get to that place, it's awesome because then they're investors. You treat them like, you know, you would treat your other investors. They help you out in certain ways. Like um, they're part of the story and they, they get to see the progress and the growth. And so um, that, that I think is, was the key piece. Like it's really scrappy. It's hard to do. Uh, you, you can find them different ways. Like we were lucky having people kind of reach out to us through Instagram, but you can also find them, uh, you know, if you're just in it, if you're in New York, if you're in LA, like through agencies, you can talk to them. It's never the best way to do a deal, but like, you know, at least to get to somebody is really effective, like working with their teams, working with PR, there's all sorts of different ways to sort of start that conversation, but make sure that you're getting the product in the center. That's really the key. Got it. And that, that makes a ton of sense. I think that's valuable information for lots of different angles. I mean, you think about, uh, 
if you had like a celebrity you wanted to invest in your company and you just bombard them and try to go every angle, like, is that going to work? Who knows? But like the organic, it sounds like you guys really had an organic approach of just trying to get, first of all, you guys ironed out a great product. And I think that's the key there that I just heard was, you know, your product's got to be phenomenal no matter what it is. It doesn't matter how you get to somebody and then they got to love it. And then you guys just kept being scrappy and kept keeping up with it. And um, a couple of those dominoes fall. It's funny how, you know, I always relate uh, some of those kind of stories, even back to, you know, anything, try and talk to, try and talk to you. Like, you know, I didn't know I reached out and I always tell people like, you never, what's that, that quote of like, you, you know, you miss all the shots you don't take. Like if you don't right. ever reach out or try or offer your product, like you'd never have a clue if you're going to get to talk to somebody or potentially get your product in their hands. Right. Yeah. So it's a great point. And I think that that's another, it's another uh, insight that, that I sort of skipped over, which is, um, you may have to respond like uncomfortably number of times the follow-up that, that, that we did, um, was pretty shameless and not like an, an annoying way, right? Like each individual follow-up was reasonable, but you may have to like message somebody eight times before they get back to you. And it's not because, you know, this is different than sort of like these sales emails that I get where it's like you get a million of them and it's actually easy because then you can, you know, which ones to get rid of, but it's actually, uh, it's actually that they're really busy. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like, and they, they don't have the mind share to just like deal with any inbound and, and maybe they will, you'll catch them where they're like sitting down, relaxing for a little bit. And they're like, oh my God, yeah, I love this product. Product. And then they'll respond and then they'll be like, oh, this person's cool. And then all of a sudden, like you've, you, you arrange a time to drop it off or whatever. Like it, it takes time. Like, don't be discouraged uh, by rejection. Cause it's often not rejection. It's often just, I'm really busy and I, I can't deal with this right now. Yeah. Right. hundred percent. And to your point, you, you're probably one of God knows how many messages they're looking through at that time. Right. So you just yeah. never know what's going to stick and when that's awesome. Um, so for you guys, I mean, we've kind of talked through the product, how you guys raised some money. Um, we chatted before we started the podcast, you know, I'm based out of Chicago. I'm pumped that you guys, you guys are in Illinois. So congratulations. I know that's a new unlock yeah, for you guys. Um, so what is, give everyone maybe a little tease, you know, people from all over the country listen to this. So, um, what, what are, what is like the horizon look like for unlocking new States and getting can into some other places around the country? Yeah, we're, so we're, we're grinding hard to do it. It is quite the challenge. We've got to set up a supply chain in each state. It's obviously regulations. We work with partners. And so we want to make sure we're picking the best, you know, in each of these states and making the product at the highest quality. Um, we are in Illinois now. That's really exciting. That was our big launch this spring. We are hoping to slowly grow uh, our very small presence in the Boston area through the entire state of Massachusetts through the summer, which we're super excited about. And then, you know, everyone's talking about it and, and can share, you know, New Jersey and New York are super exciting markets. Like, yeah. you know, I think it's sort of the first time where we'll have some major sort of metropolitan market come on pretty quickly. Um, it looks like New Jersey maybe first, New York sometime behind that. Um, but both will be fantastic markets. And so we, it's our plan to be on those markets when when they open for legal sales. So, um, you know, I don't know exactly what that will be, maybe towards the end of the year um, for New Jersey. Uh, but um, really, really excited about, about the Northeast and the potential for those markets. Um, and then, you know, hopefully continue to expand. There's a lot of great places where cannabis is, is legal in the U.S. currently where we're not. And so we're, you know, having conversations in all those states and, and really trying to uh, figure out what the right path is to, to open them. Love it. Love it. It's so super exciting. Um, this is probably a dumb question, too. I've asked you a couple of these today. But uh, any idea you guys are, you know, in the industry, so you're, you're a lot closer than some folks. Any idea when like the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, have you guys ever heard of anything of like when you think they'll ever unlock any anything through that? It's, I know it's difficult probably with with full cannabis products, but 
you know, that's obviously a huge unlock if you can do anything online. Yeah, it's a great question. We, th- I mean, we think about it a lot, partly because I think it's strategic and we should, as we're planning for the business, have a view on it. Um, but more, I think it's because it's sort of this like sensational feeling of like, oh, wow, what if this, you know, the dare to be great scenario for this business is like, you know, we can start selling this stuff, whether that's drop shipping it, right, whether it's on Amazon, whether, you know, we have a certain license type for cannabis products that are under five milligrams of THC that you can sell alongside alcohol in oh, yeah. restaurants and bars or grocery stores or liquor stores, depending on, you know, where, um, where alcohol is available in your state. Like th- those are the types of things we get really excited about. We believe that our product is one of, if not the safest cannabis product on the market, right? It has the, the, the lowest dose of THC. It's in a beverage that naturally slows down, um, sort of the, the intensity of, of the experience. Um, and it, you know, it's not, it makes it more difficult for you to overconsume. Uh, and so those are all really big advantages. If we think about drinking that product instead of an alcoholic product, like what impact does that have on you know public safety, uh, public health in, in a community? All of these really bad things that are tied to alcohol, whether it's drink, drunk driving, you know, uh, domestic abuse, child abuse, um, you know. Uh, all of those types of things are really, really scary, bad things that we think we can kind of help with by having more cannabis products. Um, and so maybe there's a path forward there. I don't know exactly what that looks like. The more sort of like business cynical approach, I think, is that, you know, we got to figure out how to get big alcohol to make money off of cannabis. Yeah. Um, if we can do that. Uh, and I think it could be as simple as just like making cannabis licenses easier to acquire. Like if regulations change such that we can have products move across states, maybe there's a common regulatory framework. Um that could be what it takes to allow, you know, our product to be on the back of a, a big uh, alcohol distribution company's trucks. Those trucks already exist. Our yeah, biggest right. problem today in, in the industry, if you think about it at like a macro level, is there's a whole set of capital leveraging that's going to have to happen um, in order for beverage to work in the cannabis industry. It's going to be uh, manufacturing facilities, like scale manufacturing lines that bring the costs of making these products down. Uh, bigger trucks, box trucks, right? Distribution networks that ship this stuff all around. It's really heavy. Our product weighs thousands of pounds when it's all packed up. Um, dispensary stockroom space. So like the back rooms need to be bigger. That's like a real estate build thing. Um, refrigeration on the front of the dispensary is really big. Uh, last mile direct distribution, right? Like all of that exists. It all exists already, right? In sort of the alcohol supply chain and the beverage supply chain more broadly. And so the real question is like, do we get access to that over time? Does cannabis sort of merge into it? Or do we build that entire thing from scratch ourselves and have it be dedicated to cannabis? One's definitely easier and better for consumers uh, yeah. in terms of prices and be cheaper. Um, but we'll see if we get there. It's so exciting. I think just even like having the, you know, the allure of like all of that, having an unlock in the future. I always just think that like, you know, every time like a state like New York, changes the precedent like you just never know what's next and when it, federally things can happen and um i don't know it'll be so exciting and it's cool that I mean, you guys are in a really good position i think to like take advantage of that when it does yeah and the good news is we have this other advantage which is um we will get to see how this stuff plays out we've, we're seeing it in colorado right we're seeing it in california as as cannabis continues to become legal in all of these states, we get natural experiments of how they work, like which uh, legislation regulations in each of these states make the most sense. Um, And I think we'll also see how safe these products really are, especially the beverages, especially the ones that don't have any secondhand smoke, don't have any issues with, you know, vaping crisis, uh, aren't really potent, right? And so I think it's that set of products, those microdose products that are really going to lead the way. Um, And if you're sort of a policymaker or a regulator in these states, and you're thinking about cannabis, or you're implementing cannabis policy, like, 
you should take a side because microdose is better, right? And so let's hope that that happens over time. But I, I think the good news is we'll be able to witness how positive of an effect it's having, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think, um, you know, I haven't got to try the product yet, but I'm going to pick some up. And I think, uh, but it's it's very interesting. Like, I think to your point, it's a, you guys have a product that's not, it's not like too intimidating, right? I think that's like one thing with cannabis today is like people who have never done it or haven't done it, you know, parents have done it in decades, maybe, um, you know, like it's, it's a little intimidating to like get back into it now that it's becoming legalized in some States, but with you guys with microdosing and, and knowing kind of how you've talked through it, uh, it just seems like a lower barrier to entry to get it to into more adults' hands, which I think is, I mean, I think it's a huge opportunity. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is a product you can take home to your mom. You can take home to your grandmother, right? Like it's, it is very approachable. It's intuitive. It plays off of our heuristics about alcohol, right? It's in a can, you crack it open and you drink it and you can have a number of them just like you can with alcohol. Um, and that's really unique. It's, it's something that's different. And, and I think, uh, you know, like you say, so much of uh, cannabis is not turnkey. It's like, grab this thing, like put it in this, turn it around, like shake it out, you know, roll this up. Like add, it, it just is not turnkey, right? And consumers yeah. want stuff that's really easy. And so, so uh, I think that next wave of products you're seeing are really keying off of that. How do we keep consumers from, you know, accidentally doing more than they want um, and, and, and also, you know, make it approachable so that they feel like they are empowered to, you know, go into a dispensary and buy this product. And that's a big thing for people. Like people are still, even in legal states, right? Or like, oh, I don't want to feel dumb. I don't really know. Like, well, is, you know, there's still a sort of a safe stigma around going into a dispensary, which is, you know, is real and, and hopefully over time goes away. Yeah, definitely. It is kind of funny. I mean, maybe there there are like lower dosage like gummies and stuff, but even that sometimes yeah. is a little I don't know, it's a, it's a little tough to find, I think even sometimes. So, to me it is interesting to think like from an alcohol side of things like, you know, when people start to drink, the hope is that you start slow and you have one drink and you see how it feels and you don't you don't just start ripping shots the first time you have alcohol, but sometimes with yeah. the, with air, marijuana it's the other way around, right? People don't know and they smoke way too much the first time they do it and it ruins their experience. So, yeah. It's cool. It's like yeah. you guys kind of bridge that gap. If, yeah, exactly. Like it's like if you're gonna go to a barbecue this summer, uh, you could bring some gummies. Like that could work, right? You could set them out. Like we could bring a six pack of can goes right in the cooler next to the beer, right next yeah. to the wine. Like, um, and it just sort of blends in. It fits in. Like that. One of the things we say a lot at the company is, you know, we want to play well with others. Like we're not an anti-alcohol. Uh, you know, it, it, we want to almost stand in in these situations so it feels normal because it should be normal. Uh, and we're slowly getting there, which is exciting. Yeah, Jake. I mean, it's cool. I think you guys got a really cool product. Um, I think you guys got a very bright future and it's exciting to see um, all the different things you guys are doing. Um, the only, the other uh, can specific question, you know, you don't have to share anything. And I know there's tons you need to do in the beverages that you're doing today, but uh, any ideas into like, you guys, would you guys ever consider getting into like other product types or, you know, outside of just a canned uh, beverage? Right. Yeah. It's a good question. So we, we're a social beverage company. Like we care a lot about beverage. We care a lot about social. Um, it's why we don't do things like, you know, CBD only beverages. Yeah. Um, it's also why we don't do things like edibles, different things like that. Um, but, you know, what we think about a lot is how do we extend beverage into different parts of people's lives? And so we have our roadies, which are these little liquid packets. You can take them on the go, make a can yourself, kind of pour out oh, the liquid. Cool. Really cool, super convenient. Um, and, and we've made a high boy, which is a slightly stronger version of ours. So five milligrams, which is, you know, still oh. very, 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 very oh. low in the grand scheme of things, but great for people that have higher tolerances, right. And still want to drink like three or four, five. Um, and so we'll continue to innovate on product in those directions, but our main thing is social beverage and, and we want to keep it that way. Got it. Love that. Um, last couple questions real quick. 
uh, running out of time for, I love to ask all the founders on here, this question, because I think it's really interesting depending on the personality type, what they say. Um, you're running a business, you are doing a bazillion different things. Um, what do you use to plan your goals, the company's goals, and then like get daily tasks completed? Kind of like we talked about earlier in the show. Are you a pen and paper kind of guy, sticky notes you've said, are you an app person? Like, what do you, what do you use to organize your life and get shit done? Yeah. So, uh, me personally, I, I love sticky notes. I do that a ton. I just like the flexibility and the sort of tactile nature of it. Um, so I sort of have migrated my old school to-do list all onto that. And then, you know, from, from a technology standpoint, the company, we do a bunch of different things, but we love notion that is great. And people find that to be really helpful, um, as a way of sort of taking some of the more formal aspects of, of tasks and, and getting them sort of run through the, through the company. Got it. Love that. Um, you can use book podcasts, whatever it is, what, it, what would be one source of knowledge that you would share with the audience today? Wow. Yeah. I mean, not just pandering here, but I, I can't uh, believe like how much value there is in podcasts. I'm only just discovering it, like maybe in the last two years or so. Okay. Um, the ability, I think maybe, maybe the technology has changed. It's, they're, they become more searchable than they have in the past, but like the ability to find a topic that you're interested in and very quickly get that like first step. And it can be a really big step in some cases from like very smart people. Um, and especially if you sort of like up the playback speed, uh, you can really get through some serious information pretty fast. Uh, so highly recommend podcasts, especially for the, the, the sort of interests, the things where I'm not willing to commit to like, I'm not going to read a book on this. Like yeah, scrolling a couple articles is probably not enough. Um, and just the time to figure out whether it's the right one or the wrong one is, is probably too much. We're a pretty quick search on a couple of keywords or individuals. You can do a string of like three podcasts and, and, and kind of understand something, which is cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely biased. Obviously I have a podcast, but yeah, I agree. You just, you can learn so much while you're doing other things, which I think is pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, last and most important thing, Jake, how can the audience find and follow you? And then how can they find and follow can and how can they try can? Yes. Great. So, um, can we're at drink can, uh, with two ends on Instagram. Also, uh, our, uh, website is drinkcan.com. Uh, also, if you're in California, shop.drinkcan.com is the best way to buy can. Uh, it's the cheapest price and you can get it delivered to your door uh, in bulk, which is fantastic. Um, and, and yeah, check us out. We'll be hopefully in a, in, in a number of new states soon. Awesome. We have a lot of people in Chicago that listen. So hopefully we'll get a yeah, bunch right. of people just clearing you guys out here in the West suburbs. <laughs> yes. Perfect. We love it. Awesome. Well, Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It was a pleasure getting to meet you and hearing your story and, um, hope you guys, you know, wish you the best of luck and, um, I'm sure we'll be talking in the future. Yeah. Thanks Shane. Really appreciate awesome. it. Appreciate it, man. Have a good one. Yeah. Cheers. See ya.